Let us first now stand as we read God's Word, as we prepare our hearts to submit to what God would have for us this morning. Matthew chapter 21, beginning in verse 1. God's Word. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethphage, to the Mount of Olives, they... Then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied in a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the fowl of a beast of burden. The disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put them on the cloaks and sat on them. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the ground, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the Son of David! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord! Hosanna in the highest! And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up saying, Who is this? And the crowd said, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. And Jesus entered the temple and drove out all who sold and bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. He said to them, It is written, My house shall be called a house of prayer, but you make it a den of robbers. And the blind... And the lame came to him in the temple, and he healed them. When the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did, and the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the Son of David, they were indignant. And they said to him, Do you hear what these are saying? And Jesus said to them, Yes. Have you never read? Out of the mouth of infants and nursing babies, you have prepared praise. And leaving them, he went out of the city to Bethany and lodged there. May God have a blessing to the reading of his word. Amen. Please be seated. Let's pray. Dear God, we have come to you in praise. We have come to you in confession. We now come, Lord, asking that you would continue to bless your people. Lord, it says in your word that we should pray for for those who are in need. So we pray for those in our congregation who are hurting this morning. Lord, I pray that you would specifically be with those um, who are grieving the loss of a loved one as they think about those who recently passed. Father, I pray that you would just comfort their hearts, that you would remind them that it's okay to grieve, and that you would meet them in their grief, that their grief would be a hopeful grieving knowing that one day they will see those who are asleep in Christ again. Father, we pray specifically this morning for Owen Hollis. We thank you so much for his healing. We pray your blessing to be upon him. We pray that you would continue to strengthen Louise as she cares for him. We thank you for bringing Ken and and Jerry and Melissa with us this morning. We pray, God, that you would continue to, to give them healing and grace. Father, we do pray for all of our members who are struggling with sin. Father, those who have have forsaken the gathering together of believers. God, we pray that you would convict them of their sin. God, that they would not walk away from your body, 
but that they would lean in to the people of God for encouragement and strength. Dear God, you, you tell us in your word that we should pray for the leaders of our nation. So we do now, Lord. We do pray this morning for our president. We pray that you would give him wisdom, Father. We pray that you would convict his heart by the power of your Holy Spirit. Now we pray for our Supreme Court. Now we pray that you would just have your hand upon all who, who sit on the bench. And dear God, in, in the upcoming process, that we, we pray that you would put the right man on the bench that would be most edifying and most glorifying to your people in this, in this nation. Father, we thank you for our nation. We thank you for the freedoms that you give her. God, we pray, Lord, that you would make um, your people in this nation wise as we think about our next president. Lord, we do pray for all the candidates. We pray that you would humble them, Father, that you would allow them to truly believe in the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Father, we thank you for the gospel proclamation in this city. We thank you that we are just one of the churches gathered, celebrating your great and glorious name this morning. So, Father, we pray for Remedy Church and John Chambers this morning as he uh, breaks the bread of life to the people of God there. We pray that they would be encouraged and uplifted, that your name would be glorified and, and strengthened in that place. And, Father, now as we, as we come uh, as your people to sit under your word, we pray that you would do a work in the hearts of your people. Father, we pray that as the word of God is announced, that you would preach it through the Holy Spirit to our hearts. Lord, you know every hair on everyone's head here. You know everyone's joys, everyone's pain. God, I pray that you would take this word, your holy, inerrant, infallible, inspired word, and you would drill it down deep into our hearts. That you would make the people of God not obstinate, God, but ready and willing to obey. Father, we pray for the people of God at Park. God, we pray as we are um, dealing with transition and change, God, I pray that you would give us grace upon grace uh, to handle it. We pray for our, our attitudes and our minds, God, that we would see the best in each other. Uh, dear God, we pray for unity. Lord, we know how, how important unity is for the body of Christ to reflect that you are the triune God, our one. So, Father, we pray that you would just help us be a people, a one people of God. Lord, we are so humbled and so grateful that this day, um, this Lord's Day, we get to gather as your people people who have been rescued from the dominion of darkness and brought into the kingdom of the beloved Son, where we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. So, dear God, now I pray that you would use this offering of your word to strengthen and edify your people, to prepare them for the work of ministry in this world. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, in May 1776... General George Washington and two others had a private meeting uh, with a struggling widow seamstress with the design of the first American flag. Uh, Betsy Ross carefully stitched and hemmed the symbol of American freedom. On June 14, 1777, the Continental Congress helped hoping to promote unity and national pride, adopted the national flag, stating, Resolved that the flag of the United States be 13 stripes, alternate red and white, that the Union be 13 stars, white in a blue field, representing a new constellation. Now we know that since that day the American flag has grown and, and changed. Um, 
from the inaugural work of Betsy Ross, but the flag continues to stand for freedom and national pride. It has done that for over 200 years. In 1831, in Salem, Massachusetts, Captain William Driver received an American flag from his people. Uh, and one day before he was leaving on his ship, he put the flag in the sky, and as he was leaving the eastern shore of the United States, yelled, Old Glory! And he gave the name of the flag, Old Glory. Well, Driver continued to fly, fly that flag all the way until his retirement in Nashville, Tennessee. Uh, when uh, Tennessee seceded from uh, the Union, uh, the Confederacy was determined to take that old glory uh, that was so popular in that town. Uh, but when they went to look for it, they couldn't find it. Well, in 18, on February 25, 1862, Union forces captured Nashville, and they put a, a small banner above the Capitol. Uh, it was a small flag, and everyone looked for Captain Driver and said, Driver, do you still have old glory? Well... Driver took two men and went to his home and quickly tore, started tearing the seams of his bed cover and pulled out old glory. Walked back to the Capitol and this man, 60 years old, climbed the tower and hung old glory across for everyone to see. And the name old glory, because of Driver's devotion to the American flag, has stuck ever since. The American flag is a symbol of freedom and national pride. Today, America's old glory will be standing and flying to the right of pastors as they declare the coming of the true king of glory. What people may not realize is that placing the flag to the right of the pastor is to give the American flag the place of honor. Uh, I was talking to Robert Baker this morning, and he said that in the military, uh, whoever was of higher rank always walked upon the right side, because the right side is the place of honor. Well, according to the, the U.S. flag code, this is what it says. When displayed with other flags, the size of the American flag must should be larger than the other flags, or rel relatively equal to the size of the largest flag. Other flags should not overshadow the American flag in any way. The American flag should be flown higher than lesser flags. If the flags are displayed on the same level, the American flag should be flown to the right of all other flags. The right is a position of prominence. The flag represents the government of the United States, and on the American soil, the government is the highest authority. The American flag is even displayed above church flags. So in our sanctuary, whether we realize it or not, we are paying greater honor and giving greater authority to our earthly nation than to our heavenly one. Now, don't mishear me. We live in a great nation. I would say that we live in the greatest of nations. There's not many nations that today can gather as believers free of persecution. We live in, 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 indeed, a great nation. But hear me, the Constitution of our United States is not more important than the Bible. We should be patriotic, but our patriotism should never supersede our devotion to Christ. 
on Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem, we see the coming of the Messianic King. And what we see is the one who is worthy of all authority and all worship was coming to take his place as king. Now, were the people going to submit to Jesus as their highest authority or to give, continue to give prominence and desire to their earthly nation? I think if we're going to be honest, we as, as American citizens need to think long and hard of where our main allegiance lies. Are we primarily U.S. citizens, or are we primarily citizens of the kingdom of heaven? And I think, if we're going to study this passage today, that's exactly what the people of Israel were dealing with. They they were struggling. They wanted Jesus to come. They wanted the Messiah to come because they wanted their earthly nation to be delivered. And yet Jesus came to do something completely different. So if you want to follow along with me in the outline provided, stay with me. Uh, The first truth I see in this text is that the one who had the highest authority in all the universe comes first not in power, but in humility. Point number one, the humble king comes. The humble king comes. So Matthew, throughout his gospel, consistently shows how Jesus fulfills Old Testament prophecy. And we see that again in this text. Look back with me in Matthew chapter 21. It says, Now when they drew near to Jerusalem, now remember that Jesus was going towards Jerusalem all the way from Matthew 16:21. He says that I, now, I must go towards Jerusalem, where I must suffer and die and be raised on the third day. So from Jesus' travel narrative, from Matthew 16 to Matthew 21, Jesus starts to intensify his teaching about the, the coming, his coming death. We read, it says, He came to Bethphage, to the Mount of Olives, and Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied in a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, the Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet. Now, when you see that in Matthew's gospel, that's extremely important. He's trying to highlight something. So what prophet is he quoting? Well, most say that he's quoting Zechariah 9.9. I think that's this whole entire day's scene is really a prophecy fulfillment of Zechariah. Others would say that there's a, a, a mixing of Isaiah 62:11, just based on the wording. Either way, they're both messianic psalms, that the, the Messiah, the one who's going to come, the king, are going to fulfill these verses. So this is what it says. It says, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey. On a colt, the fowl of a beast of burden. And the disciples went and did as Jesus had directed. They brought the donkey and the colt and put them on their cloaks. And he sat on them. Well, the amazing thing about Jesus Christ is that Jesus does not do what the world expects of him. The world would expect that the king would come in power and authority. And yet our king, how does our king come? 
He comes in humility. Why? Because he came to die. He, he was in glory and he emptied himself, became obedient to the Father to the point of death, even death on a cross. The Messianic King had indeed come, but he did not come as people expected him. And because Jesus was not the expectation of people, Matthew highlights just how Jesus entered in to fulfill that messianic prophecy. Now, the Messiah, according to the Jews, were thinking that he was going to come on a war horse. But he doesn't come on a war horse. He comes on a donkey that's never been ridden. Jesus is being shown as the coming messianic humble king. Now, if you were in the crowd that day, would you have been excited for the humble posture of this king? I mean, you are, are an Israelite living in Rome, being a persecuted and oppressed. You did not have rights and freedoms. You most likely would have wanted the, the king to come in power to overthrow the ruling forces. Now, I don't know everyone's background here, but I'm imagining that many of you probably have never lived in a society when, when a foreign nation ruled over us. But you could imagine if we lived here and North Korea was in charge of what we did for years, that we could not gather freely in worship, or that we were seg segmented to a, a small part of society. We would have wanted our Messiah, our King, to come in glory and power. And yet our God came in humility. Many of those who filled the crowd were ready to make Israel great again, but they did not realize that true greatness only comes with humility. There was no way to know the expectations of the people, but we know from the disciples that they cared more about the earthly nation than they did about the heavenly one. Look again with me in Matthew 21, verse 8. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the ground. Do you find that interesting? Even when I was reading uh, to you, it just kind of popped out at me. Most of the crowd. Now these people, it says in John's Gospel, that they just saw Lazarus being raised from the dead. So they just saw Jesus saying, Lazarus, come out. And he came out four days from the grave. And it said, most. Most of the crowd took off their garments and laid them on the ground. Others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him and followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. What that is, is it's a quote from Psalm 118, 25 and 26. Hosanna would have been, God save us. God save us. In its original reading, in Psalm 118. Now, in this day, first century, it could just have been a praise of Yahweh. Praise Yahweh. Praise Yahweh. I think the people were asking God for salvation here. But it was an earthly, nationalistic salvation. Not a spiritual one. They were more identified with the earthly kingdom of Israel than the spiritual kingdom of Christ. Why do we know that? Well, if you look at Israel throughout the, the centuries, they cared primarily more about themselves than they did about being a light to the nations. And I think the same is true for God's people today. I think God's people care way too much about ourselves 
than we do about being a light to the lost of our nation. We see in verse 10 and 11 that the whole city was stirred up at the entrance of Jesus. Now, if you you know Jesus' ministry, Jesus was used to large crowds. There was large crowds following him all the time. But here, the word for stirred up, it's almost like an earthquake. An earthquake was was developing and and the whole town was being stirred up. What was going to happen? Something different about the crowd was happening this, this day. And notice the question that was being asked when this stirring up was happening. Who is this? The crowd simply replied by saying, Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth of Galilee. Now the crowd here identifies Jesus with the two offices of the Old Testament. He is the the coming king, quoting from Zechariah 9, verse 9. And he is the, the prophet, the two main offices. And yet Jesus did not come primarily to be a king or a prophet. He came to Jerusalem to be a a priest. He came to die. Jesus came to bring salvation to his people through through his death as their high priest. We know this from Hebrews 7, 26 and 27. Hear God's word. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, exalted above the heavens. He has no need, like though those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins, then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. The reason why Jesus was in Jerusalem, the reason why he came riding on a donkey was because he was coming to offer himself as the priestly king of his people. Now the key is how the people will receive this sacrifice. Now how will people answer that question? Who is this? The most important question for you and for me and everyone outside these walls is how do you answer that question? Who is Jesus? Not not who do you think Jesus is, but truly who do you say Christ is as revealed from the word of God, do we live as if Jesus is our highest authority? Or do we pay him lip service as our king and give prominence to something else? This is what was happening when, they, when he walked into Jerusalem. He was putting everyone on notice that I am the messianic king. I deserve glory and no other. The challenge for you and I is... Where do we give our, the main authority in our lives? Do we give it to Christ under his word, or do we give it to something else, knowingly or unknowingly? The crowds were crying out when Jesus entered Jerusalem. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. It's interesting that Jesus himself quotes that very same verse two chapters later. If you have your Bibles, just turn to Matthew 23. I want you to see this. Jesus is looking over Jerusalem, looking over those people that he came to save. And he says, if you would identify yourself, um, let me say this, if you are here and you would identify yourself as a non-Christian, someone who, who, who is kind of trying to figure out Christianity, I, I think this is, is particularly relevant to you. Because this is, this, Jesus is speaking to those who 
who are, are, are outside of the faith. Look what he says in Matthew 23:37. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones, those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered you like children together as hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing. See, your house is left to you desolate. For I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. See, Jesus longs to welcome you. Jesus longs to to gather you as a hen gathers her chicks under your wings. So if you are here today and you are, are, are being rebellious towards Jesus, if you don't believe in him, he stands ready to welcome you. He wants to invite you into his kingdom. Jesus is willing, but the people are not. That is the challenge, isn't it? Jesus always is willing. Jesus is always ready to say, the problem is not with the Christ. The problem is with our hearts. Jesus tells them how to become children by repeating back to them what the crowds have shouted at his coming. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. By saying that, you're saying, I believe who Jesus is, who God said the Messiah is going to be, one who is going to die and and be raised on the third day. The people need to identify Jesus Christ as the prophet, priest, and king, the one who died and rose again. See, salvation is offered to all. So if you are here today and you are a non-Christian, if you're here today and you struggled with sin this morning, Jesus is standing the same way, ready to welcome you, ready to have you turn unto him. Salvation is offered to all, but one must repent of their allegiance to other authorities and place Jesus as their Lord. You know, for, for years, churches really wanted the aisles and the altars to be full. And what they did, unfortunately, I think, is that they, they watered down the calling of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. They, they made the gospel all about getting out of hell. That if you come to Jesus and believe in him, you have your, your fire insurance. You, you are in, and that's, that's all you need to do. Well, the Bible never says make a decision. The, the Bible says become a disciple. Follow Jesus. Today, tomorrow, and the next day. Now, there are people who have confessed Jesus Christ all throughout our, our land. And if you ask them, are you a Christian? They would say yes, but their life is not a reflection of their faith. Because their main allegiance is not to Jesus. Their main allegiance is to something else. When Jesus walked, came in on that donkey, he was saying to you and to me, will you let me be your king? Will you let me be your Lord? Now this, 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 this transcends just a personal decision between you and I. This is the the decision of the people of Park Baptist Church. Are we going to let Jesus Christ reign over us? Are we going to let Jesus Christ be our highest authority underneath his, his word? Or are we going to give prominence to other things? 
So my non-Christian friend, can I just tell you very, very, very clearly that Jesus came to save you. He came to be your king. He came to die on the cross to pay for your sins. The Bible says that all people are sinners and deserving of hell, deserving of God's wrath. But Jesus came to bring something far greater than hell. He came to bring you deliverance. He came to bring us something far greater than an earthly nation of peace. He came to give us an eternal one, a kingdom that will never be shaken. That's what Christ offers you. He wants you to come to him, and he gives you himself through his death and resurrection. So let us all say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Secondly, what we see here is that Jesus also comes as the zealous king. The zealous king. Jesus is zealous for true worship of his people. God desires his people to worship him in spirit and in truth. Now, if you read the Gospels, Jesus is not the harshest critic to the sinner. Those who are far from God, those who are living in adultery, those who are living in drunkenness, those who are living far from God, Jesus is not harsh with them. He's kind, begging them, come to him and I will give you rest. You know who Jesus is the harshest critic to? The religious. To, to you and to, to me. Those who often, so, so, so often, can become self-righteous, thinking that we have something special to offer to God. Listen to what Jesus does in Matthew 21, verse 12. And Jesus entered the temple and drove out all who sold and bought in the temple. Notice, he, he, he drove out those who sold and those who bought. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he said to them, it is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer. But you make it a den of robbers. Now, in John's gospel and Mark's gospel, they kind of put a day in between there. This maybe happened the day after Jesus' entry. Matthew puts them together. I think Matthew puts them together to make a point. Jesus was coming in because he cares about the temple. Now, that's why Jesus came. Back to Matthew 16, 21, he came to the temple. He came to, to purify and to cleanse the worship of his people. The house of the Lord was run like a business for profit when it should be a house of prayer. They're remembering how, how shocking this would have been for the Jewish people. As one scholar notes, who could have expected this sight? The Messiah, having been led in apparent triumph into the city, enters the, the temple, arousing the expectations of pro-Jewish nationalistic action against Rome. Instead, he attacks. His attack threatens the sacrificial worship center of Judaism itself. Beloved, Jesus cares. Jesus cares how his people worship. He desires his people, as I said, to worship in spirit and in truth. Peter says in 1 Peter 4.19 that judgment will begin with the household of faith. So Matthew begins in this chapter showing how Jesus fulfills the prophecy of Zechariah 9.9. 9. 
And I think it's significant because if you read the rest of Zechariah, he's continuing to draw out specific things even related to Jesus clearing the temple. Ian Campbell writes out the significance when he writes, By citing the Zechariah 9.9 regarding the coming of the king, Matthew draws our attention to the important Old Testament prophet whose later prophecies focus on the coming of the day of the Lord, the day that would be a day of salvation, Zechariah 9.16. It would also be a day in which the glory of the house of David and the glory of the inhabitants of Israel, Zechariah 12.8, would be made great, a day in which the inhabitants of Jerusalem would be cleansed from sin and uncleanness, Zechariah 13.1, in which the people would go to Jerusalem to worship the king, Zechariah 14.16. Interestingly, the last statement of Zechariah is that there shall no longer be a traitor businessman in the house of the Lord of hosts on that day. Zechariah 14, 21. Jesus came to cleanse the temple by ultimately becoming the holy temple for his people. Jesus, the messianic king, the one who has all authority over the temple, is fulfilling his messianic role to the fullest extent when he comes and corrects the worship of the people of God. Jesus has inaugurated his kingdom on earth. And a beloved, the church is the visible manifestation of the kingdom of God. When we gather as God's people, we are the visible representation of the kingdom of God. How we live and how we interact should be a sign to everyone who is outside of our body. How we live as a body that Christ is real. That he is our highest authority. So how we love one another. How we bear with one another. How we forgive one another. How we, how we submit to our leadership. How we fors- do not forsake the gathering together of believers, but give ourselves wholly and freely to one another. That's what the kingdom of God should be like. And it should be far more than, than just a Sunday morning. We should care for each other throughout the week. Truly care for one another. Our hearts should break when we have sin in the body. Our hearts should rejoice when we see all these children walking in our church. Jesus has given the church to be a sign, instrument, and a foretaste of the kingdom of heaven. He desires our church to reflect him well. Beloved, we want our church to fully submit to Jesus Christ as our king. Jesus is the head of the church. Did you hear that? Jesus, the chief shepherd, is the head of the church. His commands and his word is how we should judge all things pertaining to life and godliness in our community. Now, if Jesus walked into our fellowship today, what would he say? He walked into the temple, he saw how his people were worshiping, and he started overturning tables. What would Jesus say when he walked into our body? Maybe that's a question you should ask each other at lunch. This is what I think Jesus would say. But here's what I know, is that in in, in Revelation chapter 2 and 3, Jesus wrote letters to all the churches. And every single letter begins with two words. I know. The Lord knows what's happening in our body. The Lord knows those of you who truly love one another. The Lord knows those who are sowing dissension. The Lord knows. Can we just be honest with one another? The Lord knows. What would Jesus say to you how you are interacting with the body? He knows our affections, whether they're hot or cold. 
He knows. And He cares about how we worship. So let us examine our lives together and make sure that Jesus has the final word over everything in the life of our church. Well, lastly, last point, the Messianic King comes. I promise you I will not go to 1220 like last week. I was hoping for more laughter. Thank you, right here. All right, the Messianic King comes. You know, Matthew closes this section um, in an entrance that the, the Jerusalem ministry is, the, in a, is appropriate for the temple. Uh, look at Matthew 21:14. It says, And the blind and the lame came to him in the temple, and he healed them. Beloved, there are spiritually blind and spiritually lame people in our world that need the healing of Jesus. There are spiritually blind and spiritually lame people in our world that need the healing of the gospel. We should be a community to make it our ambition to share the gospel with those who are outside of our community of faith. But do you know what happens when people who are spiritually blind and spiritually lame come to faith? Do you know what happens to the church? It changes. When lost people get saved, the church changes. It may become uncomfortable. Change is not easy. But it is inevitable. Every time we have more children in our church, things can get a little awkward. Right, kids? You know, when you have kids in choir practice and kids in Sunday school and then kids around the church after, afterward, kids running in the field, when you have more kids, you have more chaos. Excitement, yes, amen, yet chaos. When you have people who may not understand how to live life in a community of faith because they've never done it, you may have chaos. The challenge for all of us is how do we handle the change? How do we handle the change in our community in a way that honors the Savior? Change is going to happen. Change is going to be difficult for our body. But we have the great privilege and opportunity to handle it in a way that honors Jesus. And how we handle that change, if we handle it in a way that honors Jesus, Jesus is glorified, and you know what's going to happen? More people are going to want to become part of our body. Because He who's faithful and little, God will entrust them with much. The temple community changed here. The temple began to be filled with formerly blind and lame and filled with children praising God. Look what the text says. When the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did and all the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna, the son of David. Oh, here he comes. They saw the wonderful things. We just saying that, right? How, how, to God be the glory for great things He hath done. Children have, have come praising God, saying, God save us. Glory be your name. They were indignant. And they said to Him, Do you hear what these are saying? Indignant, angry, annoyed, offended at the changes that they saw in people's lives. They should have been rejoicing in the, in the salvation ushered in by the long-awaited son of David. But they were focusing rather on what they were losing, rather than what they were gaining. They did not answer the key question of who is this correctly. 
They missed the opportunity to rejoice in the change. The chief priests and the scribes looked at Jesus with indignation and said, Do you hear what they are saying? And Jesus said, Yes. Isn't that great? I, I wish there was, like, it was a period there rather than a semicolon. It just said, Do you hear what they're saying? Yes. And then he says, have you not read? Have you never read? And he quotes Psalm 8, 2. Out of the mouth of infants and the nursing babies you have prepared praise. Jesus highlights Psalm 8 that speaks of the majesty of the Lord and his care for man. God cares for man ultimately by sending Jesus to become like a man. Hebrews 2 quotes Psalm 2 and highlights that they were the why the chief priests and the scribes should have been rejoicing. It's what I've already said. They should have been rejoicing because we read in Hebrews 2.9, we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. Jesus Christ came to taste death for everyone, to the chief priest and the scribe, to the blind and the lame, to the, to the religious and the pagan. By the grace of God, Jesus has tasted death for everyone who proclaim and believe and live and say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Captain William Driver lived his life with the utmost respect and honor for the American flag. Everyone in the town knew that his life was lived in honor for old glory. Beloved, Jesus is our king. Jesus is our prophet, and Jesus is our priest. The humble and zealous king came to be our savior through his death and resurrection. I pray that this town would know that we live with the utmost honor and respect, not only for old glory, but for the king of glory. Let us all proclaim and live that truth. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the messianic king who came in humility, being zealous for the worship of your people. We thank you, God, that we as sinners bring nothing but dirty rags in your presence. And yet, God, you have found us in Christ. You have sent your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, to suffer on our behalf, that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. So, dear God, I pray that as a people of God, that we would rejoice Oh, God, that we would rejoice in the salvation you offer. That everyone here would say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.